0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning sessions. Uh, wow, what a year, what a year it has been. Uh, it, it's only a year ago that we were not sure. I think the, uh, the NBA had canceled their games. We're kind of wondering maybe this just for a week or two. I don't think we knew what we were up for. Uh, it just remarkable, you know, just uh, I think all of us have a little bit of PTSD or a lot of PTSD depending on if you go back a year and if you knew what you were gonna get into, Wow. Uh, but you've made it through. You've made it through, and, and everyone is pulling together. Very difficult times, obviously, and, and we've lost a lot of people uh, in this country. I think the, what I heard last night, it was you know, World War I, World War II, and Vietnam together, plus 9-11. Uh, and we've lost more people than all those combined, which is really remarkable. Uh, so uh, it's tough. It's been, it's been very hard. But you're making it through. Uh, spring is here almost. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the hours changed this weekend, which tells you that we're getting very close. The, uh, from the governor from last night, uh, obviously, uh, there was a comment uh, regarding President Biden's uh, address that was, gonna, that was done last night. And, and what uh, uh, the governor said, uh, President Biden's plan is bold and aggressive. It's about vaccine in you know, opening it to vaccinating everyone starting May 1st across the country and, and, and his response, which I love, is just, on behalf of the people of Connecticut, I accept the challenge and we accept the challenge to try to get everyone vaccinated uh, uh, by July 4th. Hopefully everyone should be, that can be vaccinated. Um, and, and then of course there was the 1.9 trillion stimulus uh, and Connecticut will benefit uh, from that in many ways. One of the ways that Connecticut will benefit is uh, our two senators actually brought uh, part of the bill that was included was to uh, add uh, $90 million for behavioral health for children, which is a very specific need. Uh, not enough money, frankly, for what we need, but at least some relief for all the care that we need to provide for kids and adolescents that have suffered as a result of the pandemic. And I think today's presentation, in addition to John's presentation with uh, with Dr. Redesky from the University of Michigan, will begin to get into this issue with. Kids and technology, and how we can use it positively, how it can be harmful. And so, hopefully, she'll give us some insights about that. Just a couple of points uh, regarding uh, upcoming meetings. We have um, grand rounds on on Tuesday uh, from uh, one of our psychologists in the GI division. He's fantastic, Dr. Gerson, Brad, Brad Gerson. And the title is Gut Feelings An Update on the Clinical Application of the Gut Brain Microbiome Access. So, please join us. And then next Friday, I won't be here. I'm going to be uh, on a week of of some PTO that is needed, uh, but Dr. Shriver will be here, and he will be all by himself on Friday with all 300 of you. So, you know, make sure you keep him company, keep him honest. You'll have a whole hour to ask him questions because it's just him, and and I know you have a lot of questions for him. Lastly, as a follow-up to last week, there was a question about EKGs. We have sent through the uh, through email, through the CME email, uh, a, information about uh, return to play follow-up, which is The algorithm for for EKGs echoes for our patients. Uh, Also, where to get the EKGs in in Hartford, Danbury, Glastonbury. And there's a referral form. And uh, the option is available through Epicare Link. Uh, And if you would like our cardiology providers to read it, there's also a number there. So please take a look at that. I think it was something that was asked. Uh, We have an outstanding group of cardiologists that are ready to respond to you and answer your questions. So very proud of that work. So thank you again for, for joining us. As always on Friday, I'm going to ask John to begin his presentation. John.
1: Thank you, Juan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and welcome everyone to uh, March 12th, 2021. Uh, who would have thought we'd still be talking about COVID um, in quite some detail, but we are. And uh, I think I have mostly good news for people today, but some cautionary tales as well. So. Uh, March 12th, 2021. It's been a year. Um, Quite remarkable. All of you out there in Connecticut, thank you for what you do. This state uh, is a beacon for many other states right now of how to do things correctly, and all of you are part of that, and and, uh, it's much appreciated. Um, The race to vaccinate is on. The president talked about it last night. Everyone's talking about it, Um, and uh, I will say there's some, some glimmers of really good news about this. Um, I'm actually getting emails from vaccine hesitancy people saying, well, you know what? i, I kind of watched these talks and this and that, and I want to do it. How do I get vaccinated? I think this is happening widely. It's really good news because the more people we can vaccinate, the quicker we're going to get to herd immunity, and the faster we move back to some sense of normalcy. The messaging has to be consistent. There's a lot of media confusion from different sites. You, I show it to you every week what's out there, but I do think we're moving in the right direction. Now, we're up to 2 million doses a day in the United States. It's actually quite remarkable, and uh, uh, 62 million people have gotten at least one dose. This is already out of date, by the way, it's 64 million, and uh, 32 million are fully vaccinated. It's about 10 percent of the population. So, We know we're not where we need to be yet, but we're moving quickly in the right direction and 25% of people 18 years and older have gotten at least one dose because you take out the younger kids who aren't eligible to get the vaccine yet. So we are going in the right direction. The president wants to accelerate this. Um, I think it's the right messaging from the top. And my hope is many of the governors who have been a little slow will begin to get their act together and move this ahead 2 million doses a day. Now, the herd immunity timeline's improving. I mean, who thought I would be able to sit here and say things are improving, but it is. So you may remember 70% three weeks ago was about September 4th. Now it's into July. And if the acceleration of immunization continues to go up to 2 million or more, I think this is gonna move earlier. And that's why President Biden was talking about July 4th because new evidence suggests we'll be at a 70% partially vaccinated population at that point. So good news, but it really requires continued self-discipline. And I'm going to show you, you know, some of the thunderclouds about how we don't seem to learn pre- from previous mistakes. Here's the vaccination rates, by the way, in multiple states. And there's very good news here. You know, Connecticut used to be the only really dark one, but now you've got a lot of states who have moved to a better place, and particularly the upper Midwest that was very hard hit Um, you know, I'm very proud of what the Dakotas have done. They, they in fact ignored a lot of public health advice. It was very sad. A lot of people died. I think most people now understand how vicious this virus is. There's a lot of immunization occurring in the Dakotas. Now I think people have bought in. So sadly it had to happen with a lot of deaths, but I think a lot of people are starting to get it and this is good news. Now the honor roll for immunization, American Samoa, New Mexico. 26% 26% have gotten at least one shot. Alaska, a quarter. It's probably better than that now. And Connecticut, way up there, in the top group, with 25% having gotten one dose. About 10% two doses. It's a little bit better than that today. And the Dakotas, as I mentioned, have moved from you know the bottom of the list to really up there. And and uh, proud. We all need to be proud of that. Massachusetts, I will say, having lived living there, uh, we had a rocky start. But we're moving up, okay? It's getting better and uh, we're no longer in the bottom tier. So New England is getting to be where it needs to be. The remedial group of USA states that are not doing well, Georgia, District of Columbia, which has some specific issues, um, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas, which opened everything and uh, isn't doing very well with immunizations, not a good idea, and Utah. So. We have some states that really need some help in accelerating their immunization curves. This is from the governor of Connecticut's um, news conference and video. And uh, I, 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 you know, I don't get political, but I think um, Governor Lamont has done an excellent job and he showed the data here. 75% of the elderly, 75 and above in Connecticut have gotten one dose. 64% of 65 to 74 year olds um, this is remarkable, and, and by targeting that group, if we do have a bit of a resurgence, the death rate and hospitalization rate is going to be much, much lower than it was previously. This is very well thought out and aggressive, and I give the governor and the Department of Public Health a lot of credit for having executed on this in this state. Most states are not where we are, so good news, and uh, I thought I'd show a, a screenshot of his news conference video now the cdc has come out with interim public health recommendations for those of us who are vaccinated Um, i believe this is long overdue because there has to be some incentive to get immunized it can't just be well you know you make the country better people need to feel also that personally they will benefit from it and i think this is these are very conservative and useful directions fully vaccinated people can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without masks Makes sense. Um, and obviously you cannot be ill. You have to have no symptoms, fully vaccinated people. The CDC can now visit unvaccinated people who are low risk from the same household. This is designed for the elderly and those with grandkids and others who haven't seen family members for, for months to be able to start doing that. If they're low risk of getting severe COVID and the individuals are immunized. And if you've been exposed, you're not a healthcare worker, and you've been exposed, uh, you can refrain from quarantine and testing after exposure. This in Connecticut, the DPH has said healthcare workers still need to quarantine and test. We'll see where that falls out in the next coming weeks. So I think um, this is great news and it allows us to look people in the eye and say, look, you know, in a move towards getting back to social interactions, immunization is a key piece. So it's helpful. Now, the fully vaccinated also, they recommend, if you're going in public, don't burn your mask, do everything you've done in public that you're previously doing because we still don't understand whether you can acquire it and whether you can transmit it. Wear a mask, physical distance, uh, avoid large gatherings, get tested if you don't feel well. So all of these things need to continue. And this is where I think the US needs to have some self-discipline because if we don't do this, and only 20% of the population is vaccinated. We will have a resurgence, and spring break uh, is happening, and people are getting on planes, and the beaches are full. And you know, we we've done this before. You know, um, it's going to happen again because we don't have enough herd immunity yet. So this needs to be taken seriously. Connecticut shows great improvement. However, you know, we have hundreds of cases a day still, and, and so I think another thing is we need to understand. We are not where we were last summer. We we still have a lot of cases and a lot of community spread. So once again, let's have the discipline to continue our public health measures till more and more people are vaccinated and then we can let go a bit more. And the death rate continues to decline. I think this is gonna continue to decline because you saw it from Ned Lamont's press conference and video. The numbers of elderly and highly susceptible we've immunized in the state are quite good. So my hope is that the associated deaths, even if we do have a blip after spring break, will be low in the state. It's an experiment. We'll see what happens. I think that's what's going to happen. This is where we were a day or so ago. We got our test positivity rate down below 2%. It needs to be 1% or lower. I'd like all of these numbers to be 10 new cases per 100,000 or lower. We're heading there. There's some, you know, the, the um, Fairfield County and New Haven County are still tough. Uh, however, I do think we're in a better place than we were a couple of weeks ago, but this is still a lot of community spread. So that's one of the reasons when I think, I, I see the pent up demand to throw the masks off and just go to the big Y. Not yet, not yet. Massachusetts our behemoth to the north with twice our population doing much, much better, except for the Springfield area. And that has a direct interstate right into Hartford. So we have to be cautious. People get in cars and move around still. And we have a lot of community spread in New England. It's much better. And and Massachusetts was really struggling. Um, However, it's not where it needs to be yet. The United States overall, that steep decline has leveled off. So uh, we're in a much better place than we were previously, but we're still having 50,000 new cases a day. So, again, as I see people hopping on planes to go to Miami and and, uh, the beaches, I think people need to be very cautious. Even if you're immunized, wear your mask, wash your hands, avoid crowds, don't fly unless you have to. I think those are good advice to continue to give to people. I wish I could say you can just do away with it all. We're not there yet. The wild card uh, is going to be whether the variants uh, and the vaccine-resistant strains will have an impact on the immunizations, and we just don't know. This is a gross underreporting, but it's what the CDC showed a day or so ago. Um, B117 is the U.K. strain. The vaccines are fine for that. B1351 is the South African strains. I've, I've showed you the data. the vaccines are not as good for that strain. And if that ends up dominating in the United States, efficacy falls down to the 60s from 80s and 90s. So that's a problem, and we have to watch it closely. The P1 strain from Brazil, we don't understand well yet. It is in the United States. It appears to be burning through various provinces of Brazil again from people who have been previously infected. But this strain is not as well understood as the South African and the UK strain. The UK strain is now in every state um, and uh, I think will be the dominant strain in the United States within six weeks. However, as I mentioned, the Pfizer, Moderna, as well as the J&J vaccine have good efficacy against this strain. So our hope is uh, the more vaccine we can get out there and get, if the UK strain is the dominant, we can take care of it. If we we mess around and we allow other strains to be dominant, we could be in, in trouble. That's why the urgency to vaccinate, now, there is a new mutant in California, which is quite interesting to watch what, this ha- what happened. This mutant uh, is called the Cal-20C, and it was not there at all in California until November of last year. And you can see by January, it's 40% of the isolates in California. That's a triple mutant. We have no idea if the vaccine has efficacy against it. it, it would, there's just data being uh, derived on this. So. We, again, we need to get this under control and get the replication of the virus down so that we have less emerging mutants. Uh, If we don't, we're going to have more like this. Um, Now, this is some good news. This is an interesting study where they looked at immunity after the South African strain infection. And the goal is, look, if we have to have a South African booster shot, could we just have that, and will it boost for all the, the old-fashioned COVIDs that we have, the old ones? And the answer is yes. If you look on the original variant, uh, that shows that the, if you're infected with the original variant, you have a tenfold or ninefold reduction in your ability to fight off the South African strain. Not good. But if you're infected with the South African strain, 501YV2, you're actually perfectly capable of fighting off the original strains. So this is good news. This means that probably a booster that just covers the South African strain would cover you for all the other strains out there. So again, a lot of really interesting work coming out to try to help us hone and design what our booster is going to need to be later in the year, next year, if we need it. So this is good news. It means if you're infected with the South African strain or you're immunized against it, you will be protected against the other strains of COVID out there. Now, Scotland, this is, uh, there's more and more data coming out of, are you able to transmit this infection? In this study in Scotland, they looked at healthcare workers in hospitals and they gave them the Pfizer vaccine. You got nasal swabs every two weeks for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it turns out that a single dose of Pfizer reduced any positive PCR by 72% and two doses had 86% effective in in preventing any positive PCR downstream from your immunizations. It was mostly the UK mutant was there. So this is really good news. This means that probably, you know, between 70 to 80% effective in preventing subclinical infectious transmission of this. Now, it's a small study, but it's very, very encouraging. And I think we're going to probably hold on to the number of 70% reduction if you're immunized in your ability to transmit subclinically. It's not 100% but it's, it's a lot better than maybe we thought it was. So keep watch. There'll be more data coming out of that question. Can I transmit if I'm immunized? The answer is yes, but it's not likely. It's not likely. Now, this is um, really interesting data on long haulers. It's out in the community now. Oh my gosh, you know what, what are these long haulers? It's in the media um, and this is a nice paper. Uh, however, I want to, uh, the, the caveat, it's not peer reviewed. And here's one of the problems with the media right now they see these things published online, but they're not peer reviewed yet. And then they they run around as if it's factual. So the problem is this is a preprint; it's not peer reviewed yet, but it's very interesting. What they found is that 27% of mild and asymptomatic COVID-19 infected patients had some sort of persistent symptoms 66 days after infection was diagnosed. That's a lot of people, that's a third. And here's the demographics. Now you'll see actually the age it's, it's a relatively young age group. The elderly extreme age don't seem to have a lot of long haul symptoms. It was really ages 18 to 60 and, um, and it's a lot of them. So now 57% of uh, about 50%, sorry, of the long haulers are Latino. However, 57% of the original infection patients were Latino and it's probably not, um, doesn't represent that they're more likely to be long haulers. They're just more likely to have been originally infected. So that's the demographics, but it's, it's younger and Latino in the United States. And these are the long haul symptoms that we're seeing. And they found 27% of their patients with, um, uh, low, low clinical or moderate clinical original presentation had symptoms 66 days later, chest pain, shortness of breath, anxiety, abdominal pain, cough, fatigue, insomnia, so a lot of nonspecific diarrheal illnesses, nausea and tachycardia, muscle pain, etc. So um, there's a, a lot of work going into this. In fact, CCMC is uh, and UConn are in the midst of trying to write a grant with a number of other organizations looking at long-haul symptoms in children as well. Keep watch. This is another reason not to get infected with this virus Uh, And I saw the head of the CDC on television last night. I thought she did a great job saying she has been humbled by this virus that's unpredictable and vicious. And I I share that sentiment. Um, There's a lot of media thing. It's a hoax and all that. Not true. You see these data. This is not a good virus to get. 30% of the people are getting symptoms that last 66 days or more. Now, um, another interesting thing, uh, and it goes against the idea that um, uh, you've, you have fading immunity, um, and, and vaccines don't work as well for the variants and mutants. In this study, they showed that T cell recall responses um, in vaccine recipients worked perfectly well if those T cells were exposed to variants. They remembered and they began to proliferate, which suggests that you still have immunity to the variants if you're immunized with our current vaccines. So it's good news, looking at the basic immunology. I don't know how this translates to clinical protection. Let's hope we don't have to test it in the United States with the South African strain. Let's hope that doesn't spread. But This was reassuring that the memory response after immunization will still help you fight off those mutants. Um, What's the risk factors associated in healthcare providers in the United States to get infected? This is a great study. Just came out yesterday, day before JAMA. It's a cross-sectional. It, it had Hopkins, Emory, University of Maryland, and Rush Medical Center, 24,000 healthcare providers. And they just got serology, serology for COVID antibodies on everybody. And they found that it wasn't workplace. If you were in the ICU or the ED or whatever, and t- if you were in the COVID ward, you didn't get COVID. You got it from the community. It was a great study, and, and it shows how PPE and what we do in the hospital works if you do it right and you stick with it. You're, you're very unlikely to get infected in the hospital. However, you are if you are gonna get infected, it's more likely from community infection. So I think these were great data. You know, we share them with our nursing and others who are wearing the PPEs day in and day out. It works, and if you're gonna get infected, it's more likely from the community. 24,000 healthcare providers study. Our journey of hope um, continues, and there's a lot of hope out there. The USA vaccination effort is moving ahead robustly, quite frankly, better than many of us expected at 2 million doses or more a day. The CDC guidelines for vaccinated persons suggest a gradual return to more normal life can occur. And Connecticut has lower community spread this week than a few months ago and excellent immunization levels, but not yet where we need to be. However, early opening of businesses and states before herd immunity is achieved is going to cause a resurgence you heard me say it i'm saying it again there will be a resurgence because of this behavior and surveillance for mutant variants shows spread across the u.s this may also facilitate the resurgence in the coming weeks so we have to watch this carefully that's that's the caveats now i do have i'm getting into some new movies for you OK, and it's, this one did not re- win an Academy Award. It's Ice Cube and Are We Done Yet? OK, it's a comedy he, boy. They go out in the suburbs and they buy this house. It's falling apart. OK, but nevertheless, I just thought his expression on a ladder that's about to fall over with a hammer is sort of what we've all been doing the last year with the pandemic, right? You know, are we done yet? And my answer is not yet. We're not done yet. Take a deep breath. Continue to do what you do. Be careful. Be cautious. But soon things are going to get better. Thank you.
0: Thank you, John, and uh, that's, I love that picture. And uh, it's <laughs> fantastic. Hopefully the ladder won't fall. Thank you again for an excellent presentation. Uh, we're gonna follow this with uh, truly a, in, an outstanding uh, individual who's uh, uh, Dr. Redesky, who has been here before for Grand Rounds. Uh, and uh, Jennifer Radeski is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, her research interest includes the use of mobile technology by parents and young children and how such technology relates to child self-regulation and parent-child interactions. Uh, her clinical work focuses on developmental behavioral problems in low-income and underserved populations, so highly relevant to, to this pandemic. She was the lead author of the 2016 American of Pediatrics Policy Statement on Digital Media Use in Early Childhood, um, I understand she has two children who keep her laughing and learning, and I'm sure use digital media. So, Jenny, thank you for joining us, and uh, we really look forward to your presentation.
2: Thank you. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, we can hear. Okay, can you hear you? great. All right. Well, thank you again for the invitation. It's nice to be back. Um, I talked. Uh, I gave grand rounds last April, I think, and boy, we were just in the in the beginnings of all those. I remember, you know, kind of the adrenaline uh, that was going. At that time, so this has been really an informative um, presentation before mine uh, in terms of where we've come, and I'm hoping today to, to mostly talk about some really practical, um, both review of the data and to discuss some strategies of how to think about all this technology use the kids have had during COVID-19, um, how to use it as a learning experience. You know, I always really believe in like Brazelton's teachable moments. And how we use a difficult uh, and traumatic uh, experience to reflect and grow and think through how we can address this in the future. So that's really gonna be the framing of my discussion today. Um, I'll talk for about 15 minutes and then would love to take some questions about what people have been seeing in their practices. Okay, next slide, please. So um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the data of how uh, media use has changed for families during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then um, hope that, you know, we can discuss a few ideas of how to counsel families on using media in positive ways, how to, um, you know, take the chaos that they might be feeling right now and instead create a media plan and really try to identify if media has become problematic in their families. Okay, next slide. Um, It's really important to consider the context of this discussion, though. um, last spring when we were going into lockdown and um, families were making lots of sacrifices to be you know, taking care of their kids at home, doing remote schooling, trying to transition to telehealth or, or their work uh, remotely. Um, there was a lot of discussion about how much burden this was putting on parents, how, how impossible this job was. And I think that um, New York Times coverage was, has been really good about being really honest about the stresses that parents are under. Next slide. So, um, you know, we're doing a, a study right now. I'll talk a little bit about of the data on media use, but one thing we're finding is we did the CESD, which is a valid validated scale of depression symptoms in parents. And we're finding a 40% rate of um, meeting uh, the, the cutoff of 16, which is, which is concerning for, for clinical depression. So parents are highly stressed and we need to have this discussion contextualize within the fact that we can't ask for perfect parenting. We just need to be good enough and we need to um, you know, have realistic discussions about how families can cope and use their strengths to um, reflect upon media and, and build strategies that are gonna help them and their kids have healthier relationships with them. Okay, next slide. So uh, I'm on the executive committee for the Council on Communications and Media at the AAP. And we were getting some inquiries last spring about oh, what, are, what should families do about screen time? Like, you know, kids are going to be stuck at home and um, they're going to be learning on screens. And so we put together some, this wasn't official guidance in terms of a policy statement, but it was just some talking points and some guidance ideas to, to communicate to families. Please don't feel guilty or stressed about the fact that your child's going to be on technology more. This is an essential part of funding the curve, really focus on positive uses of media. So we talked about, Use video chat to connect with family or vulnerable neighbors. Um, Use social media or other ways to communicate to advocate for what your community um, and neighbors need. Um, Really focus on finding positive programs with positive messages and role models to talk about racial justice, to talk about um, getting through difficult times together and then use it together, right? Don't all be separate in your own rooms on your own devices. Really try to use it as a time to relax maybe at the end of the day. And then be wary about when technology use is displacing other activities that really support, you know, there's tons of science on what supports family resilience. And it might be having conversations at mealtimes, you know, preparing food together, taking walks together, um, talking through your big emotions, having open space so that people can come to you when you're not distracted with the, you know, media has been going crazy for the past year. I mean, I, I would love to look at the statistics of what's gone with, with news hits and, the, the amount of t- time people are checking um, data about coronavirus, about politics, about you know, social justice. So there's there's so much that's been grabbing our attention. And we really wanted people to be aware of that because so much of media is designed to not make you so aware, just to kind of pull you in and take you on a frictionless path. And And like I said, just to keep communication open about what kids are seeing through media, because there's a lot out there that's not really well vetted um, and uh, you know we want to keep those communication channels open. Okay, next slide. So I looked up some of the data, um, there's not much yet. Um, a lot of it was from last spring. So a group in Italy was um, surveying uh, teenagers about their screen use and they found that 93% um, were spending more than three hours a day using screens during the COVID. 19 pandemic compared to only 31.5. That's pretty low for teenagers actually, I think, but um, this was a sample in Northern Italy. And I think uh, it just shows that there was, you know, whatever your starting point is, there was a dramatic shift. There was a survey done by the nonprofit Parents Together that um, asked last April, what were their kids doing um, on screen technology? And so um, about half said their kids were spending greater than six hours per day online. Um, these were kids kind of all ages, uh, 85% were concerned about this. You know, that, that there's a lot more usage of apps, games, social media, the most commonly used platforms were largely non-educational and are a lot of the ones that, um, YouTube and TikTok specifically, the where there's not human review or vetting before it gets uploaded. Um, uh, and therefore those, those are the places where, um, kids are more likely to, to come into contact with creepy or inappropriate stuff. Um, And many survey respondents told stories about the the harms that their children have encountered. So um, they've heard some bullying, they've heard sexual predation. I think those those, um, reports, we don't have firm data from the medical literature about that. Um, I was trying to collect some of that data in my ongoing study. So I'll present some of that preliminary data. Okay, next slide. Um, And so this increase in screen time, which I'll talk about being not my favorite, measure of screen media use um, is from a couple of different sources. So there's remote schooling, right? So so school closures impacted over 55 million students in the US, and that's disproportionate to other um, industrialized nations or, say, in Europe, where a lot more kids went back to school in person. Um, And so we've probably all, as pediatricians, heard our patients talk about their task lists on Google Classroom or Schoology or Seesaw. And I actually, you know, I work with mostly kids with autism or ADHD or learning problems. So they lament about these platforms. They hate them. They're like so sick of that, that that's what school's been reduced to. Um, So that's something worth asking kids about when you're seeing them for their well-child visits, just touching base on like, what do you think of all these, you know, new apps and platforms you have to use? What does it feel like to you? How does it compare to being in the classroom? Like get kids to reflect on... How learning feels in different contexts, because they they have opinions for sure. Um, you, you know that we know that that lots of kids are now doing many more like skypes and video chats with distant family members. This isn't taking up a huge portion of their screen time, but it's a really positive use. And there's definitely a lot more of it. Um, they uh, there's more going to online spaces to hang out with friends. So there's um. I haven't found again reports in the medical literature, but there have been news reports of say Roblox, which is a very very popular online gaming platform. You know, similar to Minecraft, but you kind of go in and can interact with other people online or on servers. And their profits have increased sevenfold over the past year. They just had an IPO on the stock market. I mean, they've they really have just um, exploded in terms of being a hangout space where kids can come on and, you know, be in this virtual world together. Um, And then the one way that I I know for sure as a parent who works from home is that keeping kids occupied, keeping them safe and indoors and not whining and not asking for things when I'm trying to work um, is another way that kids have started to use more hours of screen media per day. So profits of um, companies such as Nintendo, you know, for kids spending time video gaming have soared. And there's one um, uh, uh, survey that suggests that the time on YouTube has also increased 20. Um, so, so I wish we had more data of exactly what kids are doing. Um, there are data collection groups like Securely is one of these um, monitors for school issued devices where it co- it tracks everything that's going on on that school issued device. And I've I've emailed companies like this to be like, can you share your data and let us know what are kids doing online? Cause this would be such important knowledge to, you know, to move forward from. Okay, next slide please. So this is a survey that I've been doing of elementary school aged kids in Michigan. We um, opened up the survey about three weeks ago and we're closing it probably tomorrow. Um, so we're aiming for about 300 kids. And I just analyzed the first like 260, um, over the weekend. So, so this is like hot off the presses, but but preliminary, right? So these numbers can change. I just wanted to show that we're trying to collect data on the unique types of changes in media use that have occurred during COVID-19. And, and we're also looking at how this relates to what type of schooling they, were, they had access to, remote or in-person, and also um, their family's material hardship. But we're finding that a 35 percent parents reported that their child had started using social media at a younger age than they had planned. Uh, 49% have reported that their child has come across media content or videos they consider creepy or not age-appropriate. 28% um, of parents said this is just parents of children on remote learning only. They reported that their child um, is distracted with other websites or apps on their learning device, and the number one of these is YouTube, which I'm hearing a ton about in my clinical practice. And then only 3%, but this is still important, you know, 3% of parents reported that their child has been contacted by, an, by adult strangers online, for example, through multiplayer video games or social media. Next slide. Okay. so. As a teachable moment, what have we learned from this difficult year of being immersed in digital spaces ourselves and our kids? Next slide. Well, I think one major reflection is how the way learning that is translated or you know flattened through a screen compares to your 3D environment of school. And this is something to reflect on with kids that I think they really get. Zoom does not feel the same as circle time. You don't have this shared social space where you can you know, smell the same things, touch the same things, look at someone else's perspective, right? So it's easier to process social information when you're all in the same space and not when you actually have to see your own face. And you know, so many of my patients don't like looking at their own face on their Zoom. They feel a little bit unsure who to pay attention to with all of these rectangles that are their classmates. They can't, can't follow that like rapid pace of the chat bar. Um, you know, you have to be unmuted to, to, uh, you know, contribute to your social community. Um, And I've also heard from parents that through virtual learning, accommodations and responsive discipline are so much harder to enact. So when kids are acting up or acting silly on Zoom, they'll be put in a breakout room where they'll be kicked out of the meeting. And that's so different from in a classroom when an aide or a teacher can kind of help the child regulate or do some other replacement behaviors to, to help them calm down. Like I said, there's just so many digital distractions. So parents have been telling me, your kids are obsessed with Gmail or changing a profile picture or being on YouTube all the time. Um, I'll show you some of the Google searches that my, my child has done, you know, just because it is so much more pleasurable than the task list that they have on their Schoology or Seesaw or Google Classroom. And then um, eye doctors have been worried about the effects of just learning when you're focusing only on something like 18 or 24 inches from your face. Right, you get this this not only myopia from your eyes, but also an attentional or a social myopia. Right, so you're only focused on what's in front of you instead of taking in information from the whole social world and physical world around you. So I care about that for kids with autism that they, you know, kind of open up and take in the social cues of their context. Um, but I also care about little kids who miss out on the multi-sensory experiences of learning and touching and you know, um, experiencing uh, the alphabet or numbers through tactile learning. Um, and also just the fact that kids need to get up and, and focus on outdoor um, things to, to shift focus to um, which is better for their eyes. And your joints need to stretch too. So many of my patients need to move in order to organize themselves and regulate themselves. So these are the struggles that I think a lot of families can talk really articulately about. Next slide. And I want parents to also be able to identify what didn't help this year in remote learning. For me, like this is an example of my son, Michael. He's a seven year old in second grade. Notice he knows how to change the background of his Google Um, search and his profile pic, like this is the throne from the rise of Skywalker, if anyone else is a, is a star Wars nerd, right? So, so that's what he would love to focus on all day instead of his, uh, uh, his, his worksheets online. And then he realized that when you click into the search bar, you get the trending topics of the day on Google. And this is a, you know, a school issued Google Chromebook. I would love if they had blocked the trending topics such as, you know, Bitcoin price or, or Senator Ted Cruz or any of these age inappropriate topics that might've been trending that day, right? So there, there could have been more thought if we had more time and um, more of a child-centered design approach when we put all of these learning devices into kids' hands because they're so curious, they're gonna explore and find all of these new avenues that we didn't want them to. Okay, next slide. So here's my, the advice I've been giving, and I did um, share a Google document that I created with a school social worker um, that feel free to distribute about ways to um, manage digital distractions and just to help with kids who are struggling with remote learning. So th- these include some really you know, simple strategies that you probably thought of already, such as asking for paper copies of assignments rather than having everything done on, online. Um, Having a behavioral plan, a, an honor code, or some sort of um, behavioral strategies, or, or daily checklist or daily um, visual schedule to help your child remember when they need to single task and when they need when it's okay for them to go and explore all the stuff that's on um, approved websites. Um, most of these school-issued learning devices should have some sort of uh, Ability to track browser activity and block certain websites. So asking the school uh, district about those options is important. Um, uh, To communicate with the teacher so the teacher can ping the child if they look distracted on Zoom or they've turned off their camera. These these are just so much harder to to communicate about um, online. Um, I've had, you know, most of my patients have learning challenges or developmental delays. so, So I really encourage parents to if they don't feel like their child is really processing what's coming through remote learning, have some data like a Diebel score for reading or a you know um, other uh, forms of assessing their academic progress that they check in on like every six weeks and advocate for more either video sessions to help say that child with reading or speech and language therapy. Um, because we just don't want kids sliding backwards simply because this is what what they have, the only way they have access to school right now. And then I've been encouraging setting up outside therapies that can incur in person. Okay, next slide, please. Um, For kids who are moody and upset, just getting outside, especially now that it's spring, um, arranging other sports or other activities that have reopened to see other children um, has had a pretty dramatically positive effect on many of my patients have just you know become more moody or distracted or scattered um you know getting them out of their bed and putting on clothes every day and then there's also a lot of defiance because parents have become task managers and we're exhausted and trying to manage so many things at once so here are just a couple of ideas to to reduce work refusals such as having a modified work amount modified approaches such as letting kids dictate rather than handwriting Um, parents checking whether they're putting too much pressure on kids and kids are feeding off their stress. Um, I've been counseling parents not to let everything go. Like, don't say, oh, they don't have to finish anything. Like, I'm just sick of remote schooling, because we still want kids to be in the practice of doing non-preferred tasks. You know, one worksheet, maybe fewer problems on that worksheet, just, just so they don't start to think it's only Um, their agenda that they need to follow, and then provide other activities that provide a sense of mastery that make them feel like they they can create things, that they can do things, and that they're good at things. Um, And just know that some of these defiance um, symptoms can be a sign of anxiety, ADHD, or learning disability. Next slide. So this is what I've taken away. I've actually written a piece for CNN that I hope will come out tomorrow, which is you know that year anniversary of sending my kids off to their last day of in-person schooling um, with some reflections on what we've learned through this difficult year. And I think one of them is that you know screen time was not the most helpful concept when we live our lives through technology. If you're only thinking about things in terms of time, it doesn't capture how inspiring or meaningful or toxic a digital experience was, right? So I'm encouraging parents to think more, did this digital media support you or did it undermine you? Did it make your life easier? Did it make your life harder, right? Did you feel more connected to someone else? Did you feel more divided? Did you, did picking up your device actually leave you feeling more anxious and angry or did you actually come away feeling more centered because you used Headspace or, you know, you talked to a good friend that really helped you make meaning out of what you're going through? right? And did you feel like you were in control? Or did you actually feel like you were being tracked and nudged and targeted the way a lot of social media can by collecting our data? Next slide. I want parents to come away from this year thinking like, okay, what were the positive, helpful forms of technology that we want to continue into the coming year, right? The ones that made me feel connected, I'm going to continue that Saturday morning Skype with my parents in New York because that really helped us to just debrief from the week, right? What are the types of technology that actually build your emotional skills and insight rather than just numbing you or taking you away from them? Um, Helpful tech is also tech that gives us the power and the um, agency to create what we want, right? It's not just persuading us in one direction or another often to buy things or to read something that someone wants us to believe. Um, and it gives kids and parents new ideas, right? That, that you can then generalize to your real life. IRL is in real life, right? So you, you can enjoy them together. You can talk about them, um, you know, the way a great movie spurs on conversations about, um, you know, my, my kids, I read out loud uh, A Wrinkle in Time to them this year. And then we watched the movie and then we talked about the differences between the way characters were represented. And, you know, those, those are really helpful forms of, of uh, media that, that help uh, our children learn about our culture. Okay, next slide. So I'm just going to give you some examples of ways that um, specific tech products, none of these I'm paid to talk about, um, that that really can be helpful. So Stop Rethink is an app that was developed with the help, I think, of a pain specialist um, who, it's great. It offers guided meditations for kids. There's a free version you can upgrade to having more meditations. But my seven-year-old was doing this for a solid month because of his anxiety and trouble falling asleep. So It really um, is a beautifully designed uh, tool to help children build insight into their emotional space. And then I always love the way Sesame Street really um, is trying to tap into playful ways to teach kids about their emotions like this belly breathe video with Elmo. Next slide. Um, This is an example of one of the most open-ended apps you can play. So a lot of my research focuses on what are the apps that kids are playing designed um and how are they designed and how are they like constricting a child's behavior like oh you just have to purchase shoes barbie you know that are always about consumerism or about doing very repetitive basic simplistic behaviors on that app versus token nature which is like build a natural you know world and then feed all the animals in it you know there's no there's no one telling you what to do there's no gold stars and golden tickets for doing things right Um, You know, it's much more child-centered. Next slide. Um, You know, Common Sense Media is a group that I do receive research funding from, but they started this wide open school, a collaboration with lots of different content creators so that they could take all the good stuff and put it in one place for families to find about their emotional well-being, about talking about race, about, you know, different educational activities, just so you're not like reading through YouTube, you can actually go to a place that's that's really vetted and watch all of these, these um, you know, really positive types of content. Next slide. And then I'm just ex- giving some examples of what I've done in terms of new habits with my family in terms of I have a seven and an 11 year old. I still do make them watch PBS kids and they like it because it's goofy and nerdy and you know, odd squad or Arthur, you have a lot of really positive messages. There's been a focus on race and racism this year. Um, I did a big study on what kids are watching on YouTube with common sense media. And I discovered art for kids hub, which is this awesome um, side by side, a dad and one of his kids drawing together It's very calm, humorous. Um, So it's something I've been encouraging families to do instead of their usual YouTube, like unboxing or slime videos, Um, doing more nature shows and doing more podcasts and, you know, having something that, you know, just inspires you at the end of the day, watching a craft show. Um, Next slide. Let's talk about unhelpful tech just for two minutes. This is the stuff that just, you know, sucks in kids' attention, but doesn't, isn't really worth it. Um, it's intentionally trying to engage them for longer and longer so it can make more ad revenue or it tricks kids into making purchases or downloading apps. So I'd encourage families to be like, what are the technologies that just, you know, didn't help? They, we got in arguments about them. Um, so next slide, I'll show you a couple examples from my research. Um, you know, YouTube just feeds kids an algorithmically predicted uh, array of what they think the child's going to watch next. So I've heard lots of arguments about YouTube this year, just because it <clears throat> takes them next, uh, you know, to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing is so much harder to stop. Next slide. Um, there's there's apps that reward kids for coming back every day. Next slide. There's apps that try and encourage them to make in-app purchases um, in order to complete the game. Next slide. There's apps that um, deceive them by like showing them a sparkly present, and then that just makes them download a new app. Next slide. All right. So these are all examples of the types of tricks in technology that just don't help us and don't help our human needs right now. And I want parents to be able to reflect on, you know, what types of media is actually creepy or deceptive or just leading to more arguments. And Instead of thinking of everything as screen time, think of, this is what Michael Rich from Harvard talks about, is thinking of the day as a glass of water. So fill it with what a child needs in a day, their schoolwork, time with friends and family, reading, play, and sleep, and then it's okay to fill in a bunch of the rest of it with media and choose really positive content because um, kids need that right now. If you're wondering whether problematic media use has become an issue, it's a lot of the things I talked about in terms of causing arguments Um, displacing a lot of the things kids need in terms of sleep or time with family or friends. The child is always wanting more, they're not enjoying other activities. And I recommend that if you have patients who is, you know, they're arguing a lot about tech, it seems to have just invaded every bit of town time in their family, um, use the the approach of family meetings from the Explosive Childs. This is a book that I just use all the time for collaborative problem solving between defiant kids So they can come up with some of the strategies for um, addressing a problem in a family. Like, what do you miss out on when you're spending too much time with media? How does it feel when you fall asleep at one because you've just been checking TikTok all night, right? So get them to reflect on what sort of new house rules they might wanna try for a couple of weeks and what they should be monitoring as their desired outcome. Okay, next slide. So I wanted to end this just in case Rob Ketter was watching um, for him to see my 11 year old tween heading out for his first day of um, in-person pod learning. They start in-person classes next month. Um, but just the, just the hopeful message of we're coming out of this. We are, our kids are resilient. They, they've they really done an amazing job of coping this year. So I want the overall message to be that we will um, you know, we'll learn a lot from this year, we'll be able to peel back on all this high-tech use that the kids have have had. And if if it's too much of a problem to really use a, um, you know, it might need a therapist, they might need a a really intense collaborative problem-solving approach uh, because technology is designed to be so engaging and sticky. And I want families to know that that's not their fault. Okay, I'll take questions. I'm sorry for only leaving a few minutes, but I'm also happy to answer some by email.
0: Um, if we don't get to them, uh, Thank you, uh, Jenny. Outstanding work. And uh, Rob says that your son has gotten so big just to... Uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, he knew them, him as a two-year-old.
0: So. Okay. Um, <laughs> we we have a lot of questions. We're not going to be able to answer them because we only have a three minutes. Uh, John, I'm just going to pick a couple of these. Um, with the CDC recommendations, there's some confusion as to whether or not the low-risk unvaccinated households is at a time or overall... For example, can a a vaccinated individual visit with multiple unvaccinated households so long as they visit one household at a time?
1: I don't think that's the intent of the CDC recommendations. The intent would be you travel once, you embed yourself with one household who are low risk, unvaccinated. I don't think multiple exposures are the intent. I don't think that's advisable actually. Again, you saw my last slide. Um, Are we done yet? No, we're not done yet. we're moving ahead in the right direction. If you are vaccinated and you visit a lo- one low-risk household um, and you're there for a few days saying hello to your grandkids or whoever, I think that's fine. And the CDC supports that. I wouldn't bounce around to multiple households. I don't think that's a good idea.
0: John, what what are you hearing about the Johnson & Johnson side effects? There's a there's a chat here that uh, past Monday, Colchester Elementary School closed with too many staff members calling out because of the j and vaccine the previous Saturday.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the the side effects seem very similar to the second dose of the Pfizer and Moderna, where most people don't feel well for a day. So it seems very similar, but it's a one-dose vaccine, so it's happening after the one dose. But again, it seems very similar, as I've looked uh, quickly, to the side effects after the second dose of Pfizer or Moderna, where you don't feel well for a day with flu-like symptoms.
0: And uh, when do you think the travel within the country can occur without quarantine or testing?
1: Uh, You know, it's a crystal ball for that. I I would want herd immunity achieved. uh, So 70, 80 percent of those who are immunized, I'd like us to begin to roll out immunizations for children. And I want community spread down. If community spreads down and less than 1 percent of tests all over the country are positive, travel is going to resume and it should it should resume. We're not there yet. And the problem is every state's a little bit different. So we have a lot of work to do before I think travel resumes what it used to be before the pandemic. That's going to be many months of hard work, in my opinion.
0: Thanks, Jenny. A question for you. Are you familiar with the GoZen website and program and the work of Renee, uh, Renee Renee Jane? A school nurse colleague is using this as a program for anxious children and recommends it.
2: Oh, I haven't heard of it. I'll look into it. That's great. I do think mindfulness is, is a really... Um, know there's a lot of potential for using media to to teach that and then let children use it when they don't have the phone there with them like it needs to be a skill that they can carry with them and internalize
0: great and a question for both of you uh john do you think notre dame will play michigan in a big stadium with a lot of people um
1: Um, you know, I saw the baseball stadium uh, in Texas is going to have 45,000 people in a state that's under immunized and has enormous community spread. Uh, it doesn't take uh, a rocket scientists to know that that's a bad idea. And again, go back to my last slide. Are we done yet? Not yet. Soon. Everybody take a deep breath. Let's continue to double down on our efforts, get every friend we can find immunized, and we will be there. I don't think we're there yet.
0: Okay, great. So thank you both for uh, great presentations, and thank you all 200 of you who joined today. Really great, uh, great participation. If there are any questions too. that were left, we'll send them out to either John or Jenny. I appreciate everything you've done. I'll see you uh, a week after. I'll be away next week uh, with some, some PTO to recharge, but John will be here. And next Friday, you have John all for yourselves to ask him a million questions. Jenny, thank you. John, thank you. Take care. Be good. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.